There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, a daily rundown of all things Vice. It's Monday, March 19th. I'm Chris Hurdy. Today, we'll hear about a genealogist in Louisiana tracking down cases of modern-day slavery and abusive labor practices that lasted into the 1960s. But first, the headlines. The Bureau of Land Management has some new branding. The federal agency gave out new ID cards for its employees to wear out in the field, complete with illustrations of oil rigs and cowboys. The cards also highlight the agency's mission to sustain the, quote, productivity of the public lands and pursue, quote, excellence in business practices. The language also mentions the work the agency does for customers and stakeholders, words that have become code for industry under the Trump administration. Germany's new interior minister, Horst Seehofer, said, quote, Islam does not belong to Germany, signaling a potential shift on immigration for the country's newly formed government. In his first major interview since he was sworn into office, Seehofer told the Bild Daily newspaper that he doesn't think Islam is part of German culture. Chancellor Angela Merkel has repeatedly made similar claims in recent years as the country has struggled to deal with an influx of Muslim migrants. And the attorney representing porn star Stormy Daniels, who claims to have had an affair with President Trump, said that his client was, quote, physically threatened, but he wouldn't go into specifics. Meanwhile, 60 Minutes is set to air an interview with Daniels on March 25th. And now, here's the news you won't get anywhere else. Slavery might have ended on paper after the Civil War, but many white landowners did everything they could to exploit newly freed slaves well into the 20th century. Thousands of black laborers across the South were forced to work against their will as late as the 1960s a new form of enslavement that went on in the shadows of rural America. Vice's Akil Gibbons traveled to Louisiana to meet genealogist Antoinette Harrell, known as the slavery detective of the South, who tracks down cases of modern-day slavery and abusive labor practices. Akil and Antoinette talked to a man whose family was held on a plantation against their will into the 1950s. My daddy, our whole family, was held against their will. If you did leave, they either come get you or have somebody kill you or whatever, whatever. Jerry Dawson, he lived around the same place we lived at home. He left, they went and got him, brought him back, carried him right down there from his house, killed him. Hung him up in a tree, casterized him and hung him up right from his house where his children, everybody could see him. I'm pretty sure it was 55, 56 when this happened. Here's Sophie Kazes speaking with Akil and producer Michelle Leung on the story. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Akil. Hey, Sophie. How's it going? Good. Thanks for being here. Uh, let's jump right in. So you traveled to Louisiana about four months ago to meet with a woman named Antoinette Harrell, who's a genealogist. And her work is all about tracking down modern day slavery and abusive labor practices in the American South. 
In the film, you call her the slavery detective of the South. So tell us a little bit about Antoinette, how she got started doing this kind of work and and what work she's actually doing. Yeah. So Antoinette Harrell is actually a genealogist um, by trade and profession. Um, And essentially she uses genealogy and kind of very sleuthing-like methods, very similar to detective work uh, and research, to kind of investigate both the history of slavery that happened after emancipation in the South and how that continued and how a lot of labor practices that are happening up until today are very similar to slavery. So yeah, a lot of her work is done through looking at old testimonies um, of people who say they were held as slaves. She goes to a lot of different historical plantations to kind of go through their paperwork. And a lot of it is kind of digging through these old papers, you know, newspaper clippings or, you know, sales receipts and things like that. And a lot of what she does is really difficult work because of how records were not kept. All of this was supposed to be kept secret or it was supposed to look like legitimate labor practices and things like this. So the difficulty in kind of doing this work and uncovering a history that was very purposefully meant to be buried, right, is like where you're going to find proof or evidence. And so a lot of her work also, as you see in the documentary, is her going out and collecting these oral histories from people and literally just driving around pulling strangers over and like getting their stories from themselves because these records were not kept anywhere. So when Antoinette uncovers genealogies and finds out families' histories that were lost previously, what is her end goal? Is it just to share this knowledge and these histories that were lost? Is it to bring cases to court? Is it reparations? Is it all of the above? She's a genealogist. And if you if you don't know what that means, genealogy is kind of just the studying of family trees and family histories and bloodlines and things like that. And that's something that for a lot of black Americans doesn't necessarily exist. The same way we were just talking about how records were kept, you know, slavery was a system that did not recognize blacks as humans and therefore would not keep birth records on them or marriage records or, you know, families were purposefully split up to keep people in control and also like as punishment. So what's interesting, right, is like she has this title of being a slavery detective, but her goal is not to find people necessarily who were held as slaves who are still alive. Her goal isn't necessarily to find cases for reparations. Those things obviously come up in her work, but almost as afterthoughts. I feel like for for Antoinette, it's more important and her mission is to give knowledge to people about where they come from. She sees ancestry as, you know, an integral part to our identity as individuals. And she sees it as an integral part of the identity of being a Black American. A lot of Black Americans, especially in the South, don't have access to that knowledge. The film opens with you, Akil, talking to a man named Arthur Miller, and his story is really painful to hear, but he and his whole family were sort of held on a plantation for years against their will up into the 1960s. What was it like talking to him and learning his history and kind of building that relationship? Um. Well, Arthur was actually one of the, the last interviews we did. So we were in Louisiana and in the Delta, Mississippi, 
uh, for a couple of days talking to a lot of people who are the descendants of uh, sharecroppers or even of slaves uh, from that that area. Um, but the entire time, Arthur was kind of uh, kind of this figure that we were trying to talk to, but hadn't gotten access to just yet. And so, to answer your question, I was really nervous to talk to Arthur because he almost before he was a real human being that I met, he was almost like the the embodiment of my darkest fears to a large extent. So, when I met him and when I talked to him, his his grace and his um, power was uh it was something i've never really felt before talking with somebody and so intimately and so quickly uh it was easily the most powerful interview i've done in my career what did he tell you we we, we talked about his experiences of course he, he experienced a lot of what we talked about in terms of slavery as a child so he spoke about how his mother was essentially abused in many ways that we saw during slavery in which there was no repercussions, nothing that you could do or else you'd be at risk of being killed yourself. He spoke about the conditions in terms of like how they didn't even have food, how they'd have to eat lizards and crickets as what was available. Um, I asked him what the repercussions were if he tried to refuse or leave. And he told stories about his uncle uh, who actually tried to leave and they caught him and uh, essentially lynched him in front of the family so that they, everyone knows exactly what will come if you try to resist. He spoke about how he escaped. And all of this is, of course, within the, uh, the 60s. So this is, <laughs> you know, this, is, this isn't a typical narrative that we hear in our history books, but he made it very clear that these types of things could even go on now because once you're actually in Mississippi in these areas, it feels like you're going back into time. We are more comfortable with understanding that the legacies of slavery is within the criminal justice system, within poverty, within all these other uh, systemic things, but not legitimate slavery. I honestly wasn't ready to fully conceptualize like what that lived experience would be until I met him. So it was surreal, to say the least. Yeah, you had a moment in your conversation with Arthur in the film where it almost was like you you had no words and you just kind of stopped and had a, a really emotional moment. And I think you just said to him, your story is heartbreaking to me. And that was a really powerful moment because you could really feel and see that you were sort of processing his story in real time on film. Working here, you know, you talk to Olympians, you talk to civil rights, so you talk to a whole lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. And um, in doing that, I feel like you kind of have to give as much of yourself as you're asking of people, especially um, in the context of that story. There's so much trauma and there's so much fear. And um, just hearing the story, it, it actually uh, psychologically and emotionally hurt me to hear that. And uh, it wasn't included in the film, but I had to ask him, like, how, <laughs> how, uh, how do you not have hate in your heart, you know? And, you know, he told me it's God's grace that he's able to continue. Like what Akil is saying is like, yeah, I've done hundreds upon hundreds of like interviews. And this was one that I remember we ended the interview and we were driving back. It was like the last thing that we shot. And we had to have this like moment of silence. And we just I remember you and I were having this conversation where we were just like, we don't know what to do with this information. Like, it's it was really hard to know exactly 
how to feel about that story. I hope this kind of starts this conversation too, is like if we are ever going to have a conversation about reparations, Arthur would be the case for reparations. He was held as a slave up until the 60s. He did not know that slavery had even ended. It's crazy to think that something like that could have happened and that story can be out there and we can still not be having a very serious debate about reparations. Um, And I'll say one last thing, too, is that I know that since this documentary has come out, I actually caught up with with Antoinette a little bit over the phone and she said that like a lot more stories similar to that have been kind of pouring in like people are now like reaching out to her which I think is is really interesting. So your documentary also covered a second case other than Arthur and it's one of Antoinette's more recent cases about a man named Donald Jeffrey. Can you tell us a bit about his story? Yeah, well, I think what interested Antoinette about about his story was that he had been on the same plantation. His family had been on the same plantation for five generations, dating back to just after emancipation. And up until Donald, they had all been sharecroppers. And they had all been sharecroppers under the same family, a, a family called the Simrel family. So what's interesting about that is it's the same white family who still lives and owns that land and the same black family who were sharecroppers on that land. So it's this very kind of anachronistic relationship that these two men seemingly have. Donald grew up with Karsten Simrel, who's the white landowner, and it gives you pause to think about how these people kind of stayed stuck in this very like historical setting and also in this very historically kind of exploitative relationship with each other. And so that's kind of what drew her to Donald's case to really she wanted to know more about his family and why he was actually still on the land and what could be keeping him there. Um, And that was interesting. That was a difficult interview as well, because Donald, you know, his livelihood is still tied to the land and his livelihood is still very much tied to the landowners of that land. And so I think there was like a lot of things that went unsaid in kind of our investigation there. We had to kind of infer a lot. In the film, you ended up going and meeting Karsten, the white landowner on the ball ground plantation, and he gave you a tour of his house and you guys spoke and it was an incredibly tense and very uncomfortable scene in the film. Can you talk about what it was like meeting Karsten and hearing about the pride he has in his land and what that experience was like. When we first got to the land, Donald was actually afraid of uh, Karsten knowing that we were there and all of these things. So I kind of had an idea in my mind as to what type of interaction it, it could be. But I really wanted to talk to Karsten because he was a much needed perspective in this story about what this land means and how people are trapped there and who's the beneficiaries of the the labor. So when we walked into his house, my main thing was to show that we are here to hear his story, that that, uh, we're coming respectfully and that we're here just to learn more. We see cotton all over the house. We see Confederate flags everywhere. His own house was said to be designed after Jefferson Davis, who was the president of uh, the Confederacy. 
but the point of an interview and the point of character is for it to reveal itself. So I just asked very basic questions in terms of Donald and in terms of the history that we all share, as uncomfortable as it was. And I knew that people are going to be watching this as a black man interviewing a plantation owner that almost more attention was going to be on how I handled myself than on like what problematic things he was going to say. So I honestly didn't know if any of it was going to be usable, but it, it actually turned out to be a critical point, I think, in the piece to really show the, the situation of Southerners, you know, because Donald 100% has pride and love for his home but it comes from a different perspective than Karsten, who also shares that same thing. So they have a lot in common. They call each other brothers, but you can feel the, the tensions that we were exploring. So if you haven't seen the film, but you've seen Get Out, this was like Get Out too. There was this, this kind of saccharine Southern politeness that we just felt like it was masking something very kind of unwelcoming at the same time. He called me an educated black man multiple times because he probably hasn't come into contact with somebody like me who has cameras, who has ways in which I have power and control in ways that he is uncomfortable with. So my job was to try to make him as comfortable as possible so that he can be honest. So after you met with Donald and Karsten on the ball ground plantation, you and Antoinette traveled to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to the county courthouse to look for documents about the ball ground plantation and try to find some of Donald's lineage and history. What was Antoinette looking for specifically and what did she find? So when we visited Vicksburg, Mississippi, we were looking for any sort of documents, receipts, or marriage licenses that could tie Donald's last name to the former slave owners that carry on that last name. So a lot of people don't really understand that that, that concept that um, our last names were, of course, stripped from us and that we had to embody our oppressors through our identity, through our na- literally our last name. And to get to any understanding of who our family was, you have to go through them. Essentially... Antoinette really wants to know how Donald's family ended up on that land. He only knew that his family was sharecroppers, and he only knew how far they went back to after slavery had already ended. So after that, for Donald at least, it was kind of this black hole. Like, no one knows where they came from or anything. And so what Antoinette's looking for is to see if his family before that were held as slaves in the area. And so to do that, we looked up white landowners in the area with his same last name. And what did she find? Um, It was kind of crazy watching her process. She was just tearing through maps, documents from like the 1840s, like just like I've never seen anything like it before. But she found not only his ties to Jeffrey, but also ultimately like the slave ports where his original ancestors were brought to America. Yeah, and I think the only way she found that was we eventually had to look through general marriage licenses, which were actually kept in the archives. What was crazy about that, too, is they used to keep black marriage licenses separate from white marriage licenses. So there's literally books that are separated by race in terms of records, like black people's records were kept separately. So we were going through an old marriage license book and we found someone who was related to him through marriage And then 
she called another genealogist and found an entirely new kind of family tree online through like Ancestry.com that traces actually back to Virginia. And right now she's still kind of doing some more of that investigation. But Virginia was one of the largest slave ports in the U.S. And I will say, too, um, what's interesting about that is a lot of this research and a lot of the work that Antoinette is doing has only really been made possible in the past like decade or so with developments in technology like Ancestry.com, uh, like DNA testing, and the significance of that for, for a lot of African Americans is that they have access to this kind of genealogical research that was never there before. And Akil, in the film, she asked you, like, is this the first time you've actually seen a document like this, like a literal sales receipt? And you said yes. What was that like sitting there with her and and flipping through the pages and seeing what they said? It was a weird mix of fascination and also just horror at the same time. Um, You have to come to terms with the realities of your history um, but when you see literal receipts with like, clocks, mules, with uh, an entire family also on there, it's a wake-up call to who you are and to know that you don't even know your own lineage like this or your own receipt almost. A lot of people have really internalized being treated that way, and we're still dealing with that internalization today. You know, so. What have people's reactions been to this film? There's plenty of generations of African-Americans that can tell you about these stories, but you've never really seen it in the media, like in told so expertly by Michelle and everyone else who worked on the film. But uh, uh, actually a friend of mine uh, who's a teacher in Bed-Stuy, she shared it with her classroom to have a conversation about reparations and also what it means to have context of your own narrative. So she she actually used it as a, a teaching tool, as did my college professors who've reached out to me and told me that they're incorporating this in their reparations classes and even black existentialism classes. So it's, it's been pretty interesting to, to see. And also it, it's doing really well on Facebook because people, people, uh, it, it is crazy. That interview with Arthur was really crazy, but it almost reaffirms, it seems like to a lot of people that this is a real experience that is modern day. And this isn't something that we can just wipe away like it was you know what I mean? Like this is people are still living with this and uh, and it needs to be discussed and unpacked. The one reaction that I've really gotten from people is actual disbelief. I mean, I was working on this piece for like six months and I was telling a lot of people what I was working on and they literally did not believe me. And most people are still kind of I feel in disbelief. So I think that's an interesting, <laughs> just an interesting reaction um, that I've seen a lot of. Um, And it speaks to kind of how these are really important stories that do need to be told because people just don't know. To watch the documentary, go to vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again tomorrow for another Vice Guide to right now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 